Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. In the fall of 2012, I was rough grouse hunting in the North Woods with my mom, my dad, my brother, my brother's entire family, including my young niece and nephew and uh, my my bird dogs at the time. It was Trammel and Izzy. It was a uh, experience right out of a Norman Rockwell painting. It was a perfect autumn day. We were flushing grouse, and in a single moment, it all changed. My youngest short hair, Izzy, hit a down log and ruptured a carotid artery and died in moments in my arms. It was a horrible experience that I never want anyone else to endure. However, we've all endure, endured similar maybe not as um not as dramatic but we've all endured similar experiences in the field with our bird dogs running into trouble uh barbed wire lacerations raccoon fights rattlesnakes gunshot wounds life and death situations for our bird dog best friends And in many of those scenarios, proper training and preparedness can help save your bird dog best friend's life. That is the foundation of today's episode. At this year's National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, coming to Minneapolis, February 17th through the 19th, we've got an incredibly special seminar called Bird Dog Trauma Training lined up. It's the brainchild of our very own David Gutierrez, our senior regional representative from the southwestern United States. He was the focus of last year's podcast episode 126. He was the featured person in our Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic film that we showed at the Saturday Night Banquet in Omaha. And uh, as you likely recall, David is a former Green Beret turned habitat conservation warrior. We're also joined for this episode, in addition to David, by Tom Sager, a fellow serviceman who has the unique role of training our country's special operation teams to take care of their canine partners. My Privilege and honor to be joined by these guys today. Ladies and gentlemen, today's episode could save your bird dog's life. So listen close. I'm excited to welcome David Gutierrez and Tom Sager. David, how are you? Thanks for joining this morning. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having us. I'm doing well. I'm down here in uh, southern Arizona trying to chase some birds. (laughs) <laughs> what are you chasing? Uh, well, I've been, the last couple of days it's been Mern's quail, uh, but I'll try and chase uh, some gambles and scalies too. Um, so we've got some some folks down here from the organization and uh, having a good time. It's a little brisk this morning, but uh, no complaints here. 
<laughs> you, you're not allowed to say it's brisket Arizona ever. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, I will likely be hunting in a t-shirt um, later this week. So that that's a fair statement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for folks that didn't uh, listen to episode 126 and don't know your backstory, give us a few minutes of, of who you are, where you grew up and, Take us through a little, little bit of your your military experience and what you do on a daily basis now for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Yeah, so I grew up in Iowa, uh, born and raised, uh, went to college in Western Michigan, and then joined the Army in 2004. And I was in the military from 2004 till about uh, 2000, early 2015. I served in 7th Special Forces Group as a Green Beret. Um, I was a communication sergeant, and then I moved on to intelligence, uh, got out in, after just shy of 11 years, did a little bit of contracting, then went back to school for writing. And after I got out of the military, I discovered hunting, uh, first whitetail in Iowa, and then the following mm. fall, I got a bird dog, and it's been pretty much all feathers since then. So, uh, you know, a, a Vishla <laughs> named Murphy turned into a, a Vishla and a pointer, so a pointer pup named Ozzy. Um, and I, I took a job with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever in the Southwest about two years ago as a regional rep for Nevada, California, Arizona, and New Mexico, working with chapters, uh, working with some some donors. And then, you know, I'm having the good fortune of uh, coming up with, with some ideas, uh, like what we're gonna talk about today with the, the canine, uh, the bird dog trauma training. And uh, I'm just fortunate to be in an organization that uh, supports initiatives like this, um, you know, sharing education and, and knowledge um, and skills for, for the rest of the groups. So pretty excited to be here um, and fortunate, you know, through my past military connections, uh, you know, I had a similar story to yours. Uh, a dog had a catastrophic injury. My, my dog, Ozzy, had a catastrophic injury last season, almost lost him in the field. Um, you know, I had enough training to keep him alive long enough to get to that next level of care and, and started reaching out to some buddies who were dog handlers in the military, asking them questions about what they carry, uh, what kind of treatments they use. And that's how I got connected with, with Tom through a, through an old teammate of mine. And Tom's been gracious enough, uh, to, to come on today. And then also he's going to be at Pheasant Fest to, to share his knowledge with folks, um, as far as how to keep your dogs alive, you know, in the, in the event they have a, an injury in the field. So Tom, I'll let you, uh, let you introduce yourself and appreciate you being here today. Yeah. Awesome. Um, thanks again for bringing me on, on board to this project. I think it's, uh, it's definitely, a uh, there's a gap out there, uh, with not just the knowledge, but the training available. So hopefully we could fill some of that gap and, uh, hope you guys can continue this, um, mission. So, um, yeah, I was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona. So I'm very familiar with, uh, the Southwest. Um, I've done a lot of hunting growing up, uh, dove hunting, quail hunting in, in the tanks and such right outside of Tucson. Um, did some big game hunting growing up as well with my, my dad and my brother, um, my grandfather. And, um, I was lucky enough to move out of, uh, an amazing area of Tucson up to Colorado, which is equally, um, amazing, but a little different and continued to hunt big game. Um, I was a teacher for several years in, uh, focusing on special education, emotional and behavioral disorders, students, and then one day I decided there's, there has to be something different. There has to be something a little bit more that I'm, I'm not fulfilling uh, this need that I have. So 
I looked at military service. I was a little bit older at the time, uh, almost 30. And um, I decided, yeah, I'm going to try the Army. It'll be a quick four years and move on to the next step. And um, I've been in the military for 19 years. I was given the opportunity to work um, with within veterinary medicine in the Army. And uh, I, it was just a calling. I, I really enjoyed it. I uh, grew up with dogs, not not hunting dogs, but grew up with dogs and animals in the house. And um, just it just... I just fell into it and it was awesome. And the focus on that military working dog um, is their mission and just the quality of dog that's out there um, serving just really um, stoked the fire uh, for me. So I was able to stay in veterinary medicine for for that 19 years instead of moving on to something different. I'm still active duty uh, working with military working dogs. and uh, it's just a, a great opportunity. I'm, I'm just awestruck watching them work and watching mm-hmm. them uh, train. And um, I just really appreciate what they and their handlers do on a daily basis. So, um, again, thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to learn everything you have to tell us about the, the connection between the, the service dogs that you work with on a daily basis and the parallels you see in the field. Um, one thing that, as we talked before today's podcast, that struck me, um, if I recall correctly, 9-11 was a catalyst moment for you. And if I recall, David, it was also catalyst for you as well to to get involved um, and, um, and volunteer or, or, or sign up for the, for the military. Is that recollection correct, uh, um, Tom, we'll start with you. Did 9-11 was sort of the, the moment that you switched careers? It was. Um, that was the first step towards it. I was in Colorado Springs. Uh, if you are military or if you've lived in Colorado, there's a huge military presence in Colorado Springs. You have uh, Army Air Force um, installations there surrounding the city. And walking down the street, you're going to see people who are tied to the military, whether active duty, the child of a service member or retired. So um, when 9-11 happened, I was working at an early childhood development center and um, it was it was unsettling um, because you always hear aircraft around uh, Colorado Springs and the skies went quiet. And my wife at the time, my my wife, who's still my wife, uh, she was teaching (laughs) at the time, had another school. And um, military personnel showed up to the school and they were standing guard. And it, it was just, they, they were so, I think they felt so powerless that they felt as though they had to do something. So um, I really enjoyed teaching. I, I, I found it very rewarding, but I felt as though um, federal service or service in the military was just something that I could expand that and hopefully get more um, fulfillment from. So that was my first step towards um, entering the military. And um, it it took a little bit of time and a move uh, down to Texas. And uh, that's that really another huge military population that just really um, drove me into it. So that's, Mm. that was my experience. Yeah. David, do, do I recall correctly that 9-11 was, had a similar impact on you? 
Yeah, that's correct. Um, I was in college uh, my sophomore year. I was actually going to school down in Mexico at the time on exchange uh, when 9-11 happened. And yeah, the military just kind of at that point seemed inevitable. I, it took a few, I finished college before I joined, um, but it was just one of those situations similar to Tom where I felt I needed to do more. And I also felt as though I would regret not joining and contributing. I, I didn't expect to do 11 years. I expected, you know, a single contract and then I'd get out, but I ended up staying for, for a few enlistments mm. um, as well. I don't know what else to say other than thank you. You know, the, the, I, I don't think guys and folks, you know, men and women like you are thanked enough for, you know, making that sort of commitment that we take for granted um, every single day, whether that's, you know, just our basic freedoms or the safety that we feel. Um, so, you know, when 9-11 happened, you, there was something different in, in your minds to step up and, and make a commitment that's ultimately been a lifetime commitment. I'm sure it's changed in many ways. Um, so thank you for, for uh, making that commitment to the country and to all of us. Um, Let's transition a little bit um, towards the meat here of the of the conversation, David. You you started to go down the road of Ozzy's um, tra traumatic incident, um, and, and that you didn't feel like you were prepared, and you you know you got lucky in in Ozzy being coming out of that alive. Tell us a little bit about what what you experienced and what you feel like you where you missed it what where you weren't prepared that l has led to this seminar at pheasant fest um to try to rectify that and other people's um, um experiences yeah so ozzy uh we were out hunting last year in southern arizona and um hunting burns quail and ozzy got ozzy got shot by another hunter um, and took quite a few pellets, but only one of them ended up clipping a, a vein or an artery. It, it, the injury acted like an artery in that it was squirting, squirting blood, uh, pretty profusely. Um, and, and he almost bled out and I had had both training and then real world experience treating traumatic injuries overseas. Um, you know, gunshot wounds, explosion, explosive injuries, things like that. Um, so I knew, knew enough on, on what, what needed to happen in that moment to keep my dog alive. Uh, where I fell short as a handler and just general preparedness was, you know, the gear I was carrying at the time uh, in my mind was sufficient, um, but I didn't go through, you know, that thorough sort of testing, evaluation, training on it. So the tourniquet I had was too big, um, wouldn't close around the leg, hmm. couldn't fit. Uh, he had a, the, the severe injury was high up on his front left leg. Um, so the tourniquet couldn't fit there. Uh, I realized that pretty quickly. So I did a field expedient tourniquet with a, uh, slip lead and a stick. Um, unfortunately I could, I couldn't mm. secure the tourniquet well enough. I didn't have a muzzle or other ways to restrain the dog. So that made, I, I essentially had a non-compliant patient. So he was trying to bite the, bite the tourniquet off because mm. a proper tourniquet's going to hurt. Um, so he's trying to bite the tourniquet yep. off. He was biting me, he was fighting it. So you know, I have a, a final rise vest that I could slot a dog in through the back of it. Um, but because he was fighting so much and because I had to manually secure the tourniquet the whole time, I couldn't carry him out that way. So I had to fireman carry him over the shoulder, uh, trading back and forth with another gentleman that was on the ground with us. 
Um, and it just made a mess. Uh, the tourniquet came loose a couple times. The injury started to bleed again. He lost more blood. Um, as far as, uh, you know, the plant for planning purposes with veterinary care, follow on care, um, the clinics that I had on my phone weren't open that day. Uh, we got lucky in that there was a, uh, a, a woman, uh, who was somewhat new to the area. Uh, she had a mobile vet service. We just happened to find her mm. number as we were, uh, evacuating the dog. Uh, and she was able to meet us on the side of the road, open up Ozzy, tie off the bleed. But that was, you know, very much an element of luck. Um, and you know, the, the oversights I made with gear or not having the proper gear for my dog, not having the proper way to restrain him, to muzzle him, to carry him out, um, just created this sort of cascading effect of problems to where, you know, had it not been for that mobile vet meeting us on the side of the road, we were, we were probably a few minutes away from losing my dog. And, mm. you know, once the, the dust sort of settled, he, he got stabilized. We got him to secondary care, uh, you know, overnight care at an emergency clinic and he pulled through thankfully. But uh, kind of taking that hard look after the fact, I started to realize like all the little things that, that I knew at, at one point in time from my time in the military, but I just, I lost sight of it. It was six or seven years before I hadn't kept up on my training. I hadn't kept up on the proper, you know, pre-hunt inspections, testing out my gear, making sure it fit um, and really just realized, wow, I, I should have known better. And I, and I fell short and almost failed my dog in a catastrophic way. And so after that, you know, I, I gave a lessons learned brief to our, our regional rep field team, just talking about, hey, here's, here's what happened. Here's what we did right. Here's a lot of what we did wrong. Um, then I reached out to a few old teammates that are dog handlers, started asking them, hey, what do you, what do you carry in the field? What kind of tourniquets do you use? Um, how do you pack the wounds? Uh, and they were gracious enough to not only share that information, but send me send me a couple of their kits that they carry with them on missions. Um, mm. And then they also, you know, the more I talked about it, I was like, you know, this is a huge gap in knowledge. And I, that I sometimes take mm -hmm. for granted, you know, I, I, I can look back into my memory and remember, you know, the training I went through, but not everyone has that same experience. And so the mission then became, okay, how can we take this terrible incident and then turn it into something that benefits more dog owners, more dogs. And uh, that's, that was, sort of the origin story of this training seminar. Um, and it's kind of come, you know, it's been a few different forums and, and Tom has been awesome about saying, hey, here's what we can do in this amount of time. Here's how we might need to adjust the training. Here's what we should focus on. Here's maybe what we, we can set aside for now. Um, and, you know, this will be the our, our sort of test run at Pheasant Fest of this concept. But uh, my hope is that this is merely a starting point. It's not the final product. And uh, I, I hope we can just, spread as much knowledge to as many bird dog owners as possible so that, uh, God forbid you have this kind of incident in the field. Um, you know, you know, just enough to keep them alive to get to that next level of care. Yeah. It, you, you mentioned it a couple of times, huge gap in knowledge. Um, you know, I think you're hundred percent right. I mean, I wouldn't have been anywhere near as prepared as you were. I mean, you, you and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of listeners, you know, they probably have in their vest, a stapler, a Leatherman, you know, something to release a track trap, but a tourniquet and, you know, I, I, you know, other than, you know, making something out of a leash, 
you know, that would have been something that I would have not had. So it, it, I think you 100% identified an accurate gap there. And this is why this um, seminar should be so beneficial at Pheasant Fest. Tom, as, as David's talking through his scenario, you're nodding your head quite a few times. David, my, my assessment is 95 people out of 100 in David's scenario, that pup would have died. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I, th I think that's accurate. But, you know, there's a lot of smart people out there and, and they can MacGyver a whole bunch of different mm. uh, things that are not ne necessarily medically related and mm -hmm. turn it into a medical intervention device. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the concept of taking care of an injured dog is not lost on people, but you don't need it until you need it. And when you mm -hmm. need it, it's too late to learn it. And, yeah. you know, they are perishable skills. Um, if you don't practice it, if you don't, I hate mm. to say the, the, the term train, but if you don't, if you don't train on it, then it, it's going to be harder the longer time uh, span between um, your last practice and when you actually have to employ it. So, um, I, th I think it's it's very impressive that he was able to fall back on his his uh, previous experience knowledge and kind of carry that over to from a human um, patient to a canine patient because um, th there are some some very similar um, needs uh, of both uh, types of patients and there's there's a little bit of difference um, that that we'll talk about in February but I think if you've gone through some some basic first aid for human, um, you should be able to capture a lot of the, the, the stuff that uh, can negatively impact your, your canine partner or your, or your pet or your hunting dog. So um, yeah. I think it's pretty impressive that, that he was able to, to um, get his dog to that, that next level of care. And I'm, I'm just happy that everything worked out. So to um, kind of reset your job description here, to start there. So if I can articulate it back and you can course correct me, but basically special uh, forces teams that work with dogs, it's your role to train those folks how to take care of their dogs in the event of an injury um, when they're out in the field on deployment. Uh, is that an accurate uh, representation of what you do for a career? Yes, that's very accurate. Um, so we're, I'm not going to be in the back pocket or uh, hanging out in, in a backpack with uh, just in case something does happen to one of these dogs. And, um, and because of that, I, I need to make sure that the handler is, is trained to be that first line defense at, at point of injury to sustain that dog until the next person can step in that may have a little bit more experience and a little bit more knowledge and background in it. And that would be the medic and the medic steps in and, and we train them on, on canine medicine and, and we exploit their um, previous knowledge on human uh, health systems. And we, we just try to, um, to set them up for success. And then they will bridge the gap to the next level of care, which would be a, a surgical team or, or, uh, or a group with learned doctors um, on it. 
and uh, ultimately it will get to a veterinary center or a veterinary hospital to where the true veterinary veterinary teams can can um, um, have a shot to um, save a life. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think that's that's a pretty accurate description that because we can't be everywhere at all times, um, we train the people who are going to be there um, and, and we train them as best as we can. So I'm sure folks are wondering, um, you know, what, what kind of breeds of, of dogs are used with uh, special forces and what kind of things they intuitively bomb sniffing, right? That's the first thing that likely comes to people's minds, but, but what other um, uses or um, responsibilities do canines serve with the military? So maybe start with breeds. What, what are the common breeds that are um, that you end up encountering through this training? Yeah, so most of them are pointy ear. Um, so we look at Belgian Malinois, uh, Dutch Shepherds, uh, German Shepherds. Those are the primary three or a mix of those three. Uh, mm. They don't have to be purebred. Um, and more times than not, the, the mixed breeds uh, do a lot better because we're able to um, identify that what a, a Belgian Malinois is good at, a German Shepherd may not be and vice versa. Um, so th- those are the top three that, that, uh, I see on a daily basis, but some other dogs I've worked with are, uh, a Boykin Spaniel. I've worked mm-hmm. with Labrador retrievers. Um, I've worked with Chesapeake Bay retrievers and German short haired pointers, uh, in my, in my time, um, a couple terriers here and there, but, mm-hmm. uh, that's just a, a, a different skill set that, that they're trying to exploit those dogs for. So, um, but those, those are the, the main breeds that, that veterinary medicine, as far as canines go, uh, work with. And then, um, y- yeah, so th- there's, there's a huge variance of risks with each one of those jobs because some, some dogs are out there to, to um, find things and some are out there to find people. And, um, the, the dogs that, that are out there for explosive detection training and such, they, um, they're not at, they're, they're not an equitable risk, I don't think, but if something were to go bad, it's going to be a catastrophic issue, mm. um, just because of the, the force that, that they're, of, of these things that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that it, it's, it's can correlate into hunting. Um, and even into, you know, pet ownership, I, th- I think there's a lot of common risks across the board, um, for, for all of these working dogs, um, and hunting dogs. And, and I think that, um, that there's no, there's no dog free of risk. Mm. Uh, I have dogs in my backyard, a couple retired dogs and, and they're both detection dogs. One just happens to be a Labrador. One happens to be a Belgian Malinois and mm. there's risks in my backyard. Uh, there's risks mm-hmm. in my house. So, um, you don't have to be five miles away from your truck, um, chasing after birds or, or game or, or anything just out there hiking and, and enjoying nature. And, uh, there's going to be risks. Yeah. So it's pretty easy for you. It sounds like to see the parallels between what you, you know, your career training special forces as dog handlers to, Pheasant Fest, where you're going to be training hunters 
you know, women and men who, you know, whether it's one mile or 15 miles from their vehicles, whether it's cliffs with chucker hunting, um, rivers, cold water, ice, um, cattail sloughs, you know, it, it, there's a lot of parallels to what you do and what you're going to volunteer with the uh, Pheasant Fest, aren't there, Tom? There are. And, and just because uh, an injury doesn't have to be catastrophic to be an, um, a concern for the health and welfare of the dog. Mm. So if you're out there and, and you, you get a pad laceration, well, it's not going to be catastrophic typically, but that dog's not going to be super happy. They're not going to be comfortable and they're going to be stressed out and mm -hmm. uh, they're just not going to be feeling right. So you know, I think looking at it as a holistic view is, is I, I want to do what's best for my dog, regardless of, um, the injury or illness that we're dealing with. Um, as long as I focus and be an advocate for that dog, I'm going to do right. Um, I wouldn't want to walk around with blistered feet and a cut right. on my arm, uh, even if it's not bleeding. Um, so I, I'm going to try to take care of that dog as much as possible. And I, I think a lot of people have the same view. You know, I, it was probably the last podcast or maybe two podcasts ago. We were just talking about how fascinating, like just how much we underestimate <clears throat> the abilities of dogs, you know, particularly their nose, right? Like their, their, their ability to scent. I don't think we as humans even can fathom how powerful that is. Um, I, my assumption is, you know, and I think you said you, you've been doing this for almost 19 years, is that you've seen some pretty darn amazing things happen with dogs. What, what first comes to your mind is like, I can't believe a dog did that. Yeah. So the, the training that, that these dogs go through is pretty dynamic and, um, sometimes it's, um, it's within an environment which is full of distractors. And um, these dogs are so focused that, you know, there, there's, there's gunfire or there's explosives or there's training, um, training aspects put into the environment to, as, as distractors for the dogs. And these dogs can focus on what they're trained to do uh, a lot better than I can. And uh, I, I see a butterfly fly, fly by and I'm, I'm distracted <laughs> a little bit. And, and you, you know, I have a list of 15,000 things that I, I, I would like to get done in a day. And these mm -hmm. dogs have a sole mission and um, I'm a little jealous of that, but I think just, just the, the dynamic uh, aspect of the dog, the way that they use their entire body is, is pretty impressive. And, um, the way they could focus in on, on what they're trained to do is, is so much, um, it's underrated. And, and like you said, you know, we, we under, we underestimate their abilities. Um, but we also underestimate their stoicism. Uh, they're very stoic animals. Um, they could be se severely injured and, um, they're still going to want to do what, what mom and dad want them to do. They mm. still want to go out and do what they're trained to do. And, um, I've seen some injuries where, where, where dogs are still driving to, to get that mission done or, or get that job done. Whereas, you, you know, there's, there's people out there that, that, you know, jam a finger and they're like, Ooh, I'm, I can't, 
I can't work today or <laughs> feeling a little sick. So I, I'm going to yeah. take the day off. So the, the, the dogs are just amazing. And, and I'm, yeah. I count myself lucky every day I get to see them and love with them and interact with them and just kind of pet them up. They're pretty awesome. In real generic terms, um, I'd say that most people believe that, you know, a dog at one, you know, can be very helpful in the field. A dog at two is really starting to put things together. A dog at three is reaching their prime and prime as a bird hunting companion, you know, lasts from three to six, three to seven, and then their physical um, talents maybe start to slide their their mental capabilities hang on for a couple more years but they maybe their athleticism just can't keep up i'm curious about when from the military perspective how long does the training take to get a dog to be uh, to the level that you need in your field and is that arc um a very similar pattern um you know what they do in the hunting is that pattern similar in the military yeah so i just want to qualify i'm a veterinary technician uh, i'm not a trainer and i have a lot mm -hmm. of respect for the trainers i work for so i'm kind of speaking a little bit outside my realm of expertise or experience but uh, because i've been able to watch these trainers work um, and, and have been able to kind of sit back and, and take note and ask some pointed questions and just through conversation um, I think it, it correlates very closely to the hunting dog population. Um, most of these dogs, when they're when they're 12 months, 18 months, that's when they when they um, start really heavy training on them and and um, and getting them to do what they need to do, uh, whatever their mission is. And and yeah, that prime spot is two to three years old. Uh, some dogs work until they're six, seven, eight years old within the military um, uh, service. Uh, some dogs um, peak out at five, maybe four mm -hmm. years old. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with repeat exposure. Um, mm -hmm. I think that stress has, has some, some um, um, unidentified uh, influence on whether the dog uh, has it um, mm -hmm. or, or has the drive to push through the, well, I'm not feeling my A game right now. I'm still interested in doing it, but I may be a step slower or I sure. may, um, may be a little bit more, um, apt not to run in, uh, at a hundred miles an hour and, and, and do what you're asking me to do. I'm still going to do it, but, um, just a little bit tired maybe. Um, yeah. so I think, I think there is an expiration date on, on, on their service. And I think, um, that could correlate to hunting dogs. Uh, I think I like your point where, you know, just because the body can't do it doesn't mean the brain doesn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, we, we see that a lot in some of these dogs that that deploy in, in or work on, on bases and just the, the training rigor and the work rigor. Um, you know, they, the, the dogs may lose a step in speed, um, but you see it in their eyes. You see it in their interactions. They're still interested and they mm -hmm. still want to do it. But with the mission that these these dogs have, they, they need to be the the rock stars. They need to be at their prime. And right. um, I'd, I'd much rather um, get them into to the house, uh, adopted out or um, 
transferred to a police department where they could go home or law enforcement agency where they could go home and still work, but maybe not in the capacity that the stress level military service. Definitely. Yeah. David, uh, in your experience as a green beret, were you, were you, um, utilizing dogs in a lot of your, um, deployments, uh, overseas? We, we use them. Yes. We had, uh, we had dog handlers that would some, sometimes get attached to our teams. Um, I think when I was deploying to Afghanistan, it was still somewhat in its infancy as far as the, uh, the canine program. Um, but I, I do recall we had, I, I believe it was a Dutch shepherd and then maybe on another deployment, hmm. I think we had a Belgian Malinois and, and a handler, um, that was with us and we didn't use them too often uh we were also there we we had a tendency of doing a lot of uh daylight raids during the heat of the summer um so the dogs you know capacity to to do well in 120 degree heat was a little was a little challenging but uh but yeah we did have them uh, mm-hmm. but i think i think the canine program at least at uh, the unit i was with took off uh as i was transitioning out of afghan deployments and heading down to south america more mm-hmm. it and it does feel like, um, you know, Tom, that one of the things that we probably underestimate is, you know, it's easy to think automatically like bombs, right? But the more obvious thing that you're probably working handlers through is heat. And, you know, potentially, you know, maybe not where there's conflict in the world nowadays, but cold. I mean, it, I'm assuming temperature and its impact on canines is probably something you deal with more so than even some of the catastrophic things, isn't it? It is. Um, so hyperthermia is, is a huge concern, um, hmm. especially where we've been the last several years. And even, even during um, like the Iditarod sled dog races, mm-hmm. um, they can still succumb to heat injury, even in those colder environments, hmm. um, just because they, they don't, they don't have a very efficient thermoregulation process. Um, so they pant for thermoregulation. That's how they primarily cool their bodies. It's all the evaporation within their, their, their airway. Um, so they don't sweat like us. Um, mm-hmm. They have some um, sweating that happens in, in the paws and the pads. But uh, I've been up to the Iditarod uh, a couple of times. And, and I just heard, listened to one of the veterinarians that has done um, I did a rod support for 12, 13 years speak last week. Um, and in, sh- they're still looking at heat injuries out on the trail when it's, when it's mm. super cold and icy and windy. So, uh, that, that is a huge concern for us that, um, we need to be smart and that's when we need to really advocate for our dog. Um, y- you know, you, yeah, you always want that, that that one more, one more run, we, we need mm-hmm. the dog for this, or we, we want one more time that dog to go out and, and, and flush that cubby or, uh, pick up that bird. Well, you know, that one more run may be very detrimental for the dog. So, mm-hmm. um, we, we really need to, to focus in on that and kind of do a holistic assessment of the environment, how much the dog's been working, how hydrated the dog is, how conditioned the dog is, um, how far that, that send is going to be, um, what are they going to be going through and, um, c- kind of re- really 
really make that that decision before sending them. Yeah. Um, we're going to transition to discussing the seminar um, overview. Before I do that, um, I want to give a shout out to Onyx, national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and a sponsor of On the Wing podcast. Uh, private and public land boundaries just begin to scratch the surface as Onyx has countless tools to make you a safer and more successful bird hunter. Onyx is trusted by millions of Americans, and you can test drive a risk-free seven-day trial at onyxhunt.com or, or and use the code pheasants or quail during the checkout process at onyxhunt.com and you get 20% off uh, your onyx membership and a portion of the sale comes back to pheasants forever and quail forever's wildlife habitat mission leading to better habitat more wild birds and creating more public access places for you and your bird dog to go explore. So thank you very much to Onyx for supporting Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, and On the Wing Podcast. David, tell us, so we, we've, we've gone through the Genesis story and it's pretty easy to see the parallels and how much Tom brings to a seminar, a trauma, a bird dog trauma seminar. Uh, how's that going to take place at Pheasant Fest and what's going to get covered? Yeah, so we are going to run uh, three classes, uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. The The courses are going to be six hours in length, so they'll run from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. We'll take an hour from noon to 1 o'clock to grab some lunch. Um, and each class can hold up to 20 people, so 20, 20 students per course. And there's going to be primary and secondary uh injuries that we're going to cover. And Tom, feel free to chime in if I screw any of this up. But uh, some of the primary uh, things we're going to address, uh, it's massive hemorrhage. So that's talking gunshots, lacerations, puncture wounds. Uh, with respect to airway, it'll be facial trauma, chest wounds, um, as well as envenomation. And if I'm not mistaken, that's like snake bite, spider bite, venomous encounters. Um, I had to look that You've one got up. got it. That's perfect. <laughs> And then the third hmm. primary focus area will be uh, respiration. So uh, addressing uh, things like tension pneumothorax. Uh, secondary care focuses will uh, address fluid therapy, eye and mouth injuries, heat injuries, as well as uh, bandaging and splinting. Um, there's going to be, I think the way we have it planned right now, it'll be about two hours of lecture on the front end. And then the last four hours of training will be some hands-on. We have some, Tom's bringing some really incredible uh, training aids, uh, dog training aids, so folks can uh, learn how to pack wounds, how to splint, how to apply tourniquets, treat chest wounds. Um, we're also going to have, thanks to our, our friends at Purina, um, Dr. Seth Bynum. Uh, he, you might know him as, uh, I think I believe it's Bird Dog Vet on Instagram. Uh, he's going to be covering yep. canine nutrition. Yep. And then we will also have a gentleman, uh, who's known as the trap doctor. His name is Jerry Snetzinger. Uh, and he focuses on how to get your dogs out of any variety of traps that you might encounter in the field, um, snares and, and, and everything else. Um, so to attend this course, uh, it's $500. 
You're going to get a PF or QF Dog Life membership to honor the dog if you're choosing, but you're also going to walk away with a Bird Dog Field Trauma Kit that is similar to what my friends, uh, you know, Tom's Tom's colleagues sent to me, and it's going to contain a lot of the items that you're going to use in the actual hands-on training portion. So not only will you have the the experience with these items, but you're going to be able to take them home, and and you know, if you find yourself in a situation where you need to use them, you'll know how. Yeah, it's a, you know, not to sound like an infomercial, but that's a, that it's a massive package, right? I mean, for folks, uh, probably initial, there's a little sticker shock, 500 bucks. But think about that for a moment. A, a dog life membership is 500 bucks to the organization. It's tax deductible. You got a sem- six hour seminar where you get your hands on you know, some actual training that can save your dog's life. And you think how much time, dollars and love that you have invested in bird dogs, um, you know, $500 over the course of your life, what you learn, you know, that you'll have with you for the rest of your, your hunting life is, is almost invaluable. And that trauma quit, kit from Purina, um, and there's only 20 spots available um, it, it, I, when I start looking at all this, these pieces, I think, you know, if a person's a hunting guide or a kennel owner, a dog trainer, um, there, there's some people out there that this is a, this could be just absolutely tailor-made to, you know, as a course to go through that, um, it, you know, they'd be able to put it to work for them on their day-to-day basis you know it just doesn't feel like there's anything like this offered anywhere in the country ever that i've seen have you ever been asked to do anything like this tom yeah i've done some training with some um law enforcement agencies here local and then down in florida uh, mm. and and that's where the rubber meets the road and and i think they're at a higher risk than than a lot of these other dogs because they're they're engaging just, just not great people on a daily basis. Mm. And, um, I did a, cl- a course with, uh, a, a training, um, company down there for, down in, uh, Southern Florida. And I got some feedback from one of their handlers about a month later that he had the dog at home and the, and, and the dog just wasn't acting right. And, um, he attributed the, his ability to identify that and treat that dog, um, to the course because this is the first course that they've ever experienced or, or, or attended. So, um, that, that dog uh, had gastric dilation volvulus, which happens in, um, typically working dog breeds, um, large deep chested dogs. And he was mm. able to identify those signs and symptoms. He actually, uh, decompressed the stomach. It's when the stomach twists on itself. So it's, okay. um, there's no input or output of the stomach. So it just kind of expands and, and it's a critical, critical issue, uh, for these dogs, uh, definitely life ending. Um, and he was able to decompress the stomach and get him to a veterinary, um, center for surgical fix. So I, I think that, um, I, I have done some training with law enforcement, uh, some, uh, partner forces, some other federal agencies. Uh, this will be my first time with, um, dog owners, not, um, military or law enforcement, um, driven, but I think I'm really excited about it. I'd like to, uh, to meet, to meet some of those people that, um, you know, have this, this human animal bond with Mm -hmm. their dogs that 
I'm not going to say our handlers don't have, but when you invest that much time and you're sharing this, um, this hobby or, or lifestyle with these dogs, mm -hmm. they become a little bit more than just a dog in my opinion. So, yeah. um, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to be awesome experience for me. Yeah. Right on. So reiterate, um, during pheasant fest so during the week of pheasant fest it's um thursday february the 16th friday february 17th and saturday february 18th the minneapolis convention center from 8 a.m to 3 p.m only 20 students max per day so you get some you know, really intimate um, back and forth with the trainers. Um, mentioned Tom Sager, who we're talking to, Dr. Seth Bynum um, of Instagram fame, Bird Dog Vet, um, and then um, and Jerry, the Trap Doctor. You know, from Minnesotans hearing this, uh, you know, the, the trap issue has been talked about for, oh, uh, at least a decade. Um, where there's lots of concern around conibear traps in the state of Minnesota. And this is a uh, opportunity for you to learn a little bit about how to get your dog out of a trap. Snares in other parts of the country are, are a big concern. So um, just a tremendous um, lineup of speakers and training. You can learn all about the event and sign up um, and, and reserve your spot at pheasantsforever.org slash K, the letter K, the number nine, canine trauma. So pheasantsforever.org slash canine trauma. Uh, what do we miss, David? Anything um, that you, you wanted to touch on about the seminar that we haven't hit on yet? Uh, I think we've covered it pretty well. I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I, I hope it's as, as valuable as I believe this will be for, for the folks who attend. Um, I know we already have quite a few staff that uh, are jealous that they'll have to be working and unable to uh, attend <laughs> the training. So, so Tom, I may, uh, I may be bugging you again uh, down the road. Um, but, you know, this is the first step and this is, this is something I'm, I'm obviously mm -hmm. very passionate about, and I, I just want as many people to, uh, to have a little bit more knowledge and, and capacity to take care of their dogs in the field, and um, I think it's going to be incredible. Yeah. Yeah, as a person, well, I'll ask you both for your closing thoughts as we wrap up here, but, you know, I, as a person who I let off the show who, you know, held a pup that I just I loved and we all love our dogs and held that pup in my arms and watched her go at a year and a half and of a ruptured carotid artery. And I've had in that particular instance, there was nothing I could do, but I would implore you if you have that same bond with a dog, there are things that you would be able to do to save a dog's life. And we all have encountered things, whether it's rebar, barbed wire, you know, careless gunshot, um, a vehicle. How many dogs have been hit by vehicles? Twisted stomach, you know, we, torsion. You know, that's something that we've all feared 
you know, feeding the dog at the wrong time. Um, a dog gets into something and eats something that they shouldn't, you know, whether it's a dead animal, <laughs> um, you know, onions, which are toxic, grapes, gum, you know, um, or who knows what, you know, <laughs> we've had, yeah, we've all had chicken bones, right? So there's all sorts of things that dogs, for as smart as they are, <laughs> sometimes they do some things that make you scratch your head, but gosh, if there are, there's a step we could do to help save a pup's life, whether that's yours or friends, um, you know, this seminar is an opportunity to learn a little bit. And uh, it's a good cause. And again, it uh, comes with a dog life membership, a trauma kit, which is probably <laughs> worth its weight in gold by itself. Um, but uh, I ask folks, uh, if you're listening, please check it out pheasantsforever.org slash canine trauma. Uh, closing thoughts. Let's start with Tom. What What's your closing thought for uh, for this episode? Yeah, like I said earlier, you know, I, I appreciate you guys uh, really bringing this up because I, I do think it's uh, it, it's um, under thought. And I mm. think that it's it's not always the forefront of the uh, in the brain of, of the, the owner handler of the dog. And um, if 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 you can take this information and if you, if you're listening and, and you, you'll start the whole uh, thought process of, wow, yeah, I'm not going to be able to attend, I, but I, I really need to start looking at that. I think that's, that's important. I think there's certain things out there that we, we won't be able to fix. Um, and, and those are the really catastrophic experiences. Um, but being empowered to to have that knowledge and that practice and that that skill set is I, I think pretty important because then you're not leaving anything on the table you, you did everything that you could with what you had um mentally and physically around you and, and you did your best and and um hopefully more times than not that that comes out as, as a good story instead of the other but even if it doesn't turn out the way you wanted it um, I do think that there can be um, a lot of benefit to going, hey, look, I, I was I had this information, I had this training, I had this equipment and um, I, I did the best I could. So I think mentally, yeah. I think emotionally, I think that's pretty important, especially with the relationships we build with with these dogs. That's that is such an important point because like, I had had Izzy, my pup that died of the carotid artery rupture, had it been something that I could have remedied or kept her alive for just a little bit longer based on gray matter between my head or something that I had at my disposal and I didn't know or I didn't do it. You're right. The mental strain that would have put on me, the emotional weight that that would have been, um, it was hard enough going through it, but the solace I feel in knowing like some things are just out of our control gives me a peace. Had it been something different where I didn't, I might be still chasing that piece. That's a really, really important point. Um, David closing thoughts. If people also, if people want to ask you questions about uh, um, the seminars after hearing this, but you know, maybe have some on, uh, you know, unanswered thoughts or questions about what's going to happen. How did they get in touch with you? 
Yeah, so folks can reach out to me directly via email. It's uh, D Gutierrez, so D G U T I E R R E Z at pheasantsforever.org, and we can put that down in the show notes. Um, and feel free if you have questions, uh, please reach out. If these seminars do sell out, which we're, we're hopeful they do, um, we will be mm -hmm. taking a list of names. So if this is a topic of interest for you down the road, uh, please still sign up, get on a wait list, get on our, our contact list. And, uh, you know, I hope this is just the first of many training opportunities like this. Um, and, you know, and just to kind of echo what both, you know, you, Bob and, and Tom have said, um, when, you know, when Ozzy got shot and we were trying to get him back to the truck, uh, there, there came a point where moving him was no longer productive. The, he kept biting the tourniquet loose, fidgeting too much, fighting it. So I ended up uh, stopping on a, on a, on a hilltop. It was just prairie grass, and we had sent some folk, uh, a guy to go get the trucks to bring it back to, to where we were located. We were about two miles from the truck when he got injured, um, and you know his guns, gums had gone grayish white. He was starting to drool, kind of mm -hmm. groan. And I just remember sitting there being like, I'm going to lose my dog. Like, this is, this is where it ends. So we were, mm. you know, I just held him and I just remember, I just said to him, like, I'm sorry. And I just kept saying that over and over again, because I, I realized like I, I hadn't been prepared enough and I, I hadn't done my part as a handler and an owner to ensure, you know, he, he'd have his best chance in a situation like that. And that is a, that is a terrible feeling. And, you know, fortunately he pulled through. And, you know, this is kind of a, I guess the story arc would be one of redemption. Um, so, you know, I, I've learned a lot from mm -hmm. it. I'm, I'm trying to share those lessons learned with other folks. Uh, Ozzy and I, were, we're going to go back to that spot where he got hurt last year. We're going to go chase some Merns, you know, just me and him. Uh, it's going to be good. Granted, I would love for him to get some points, but if he wants to bump and chase some birds, that's fine too. He's just gonna, he's gonna have some fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, and I, I feel very yeah. fortunate that I can, I can have that experience with him still. So, uh, yeah, I, again, this is near and dear to my heart. Um, I, I hope folks sign up, attend and, and, you know, have a great experience and, and I'm sure they will. So, uh, just really excited to, yeah. to be putting this together. And I feel really fortunate that, that I'm part of an organization that, uh, is so supportive of an, an initi initiative like this. Right on. Um, pheasantsforever.org slash K9 trauma. Uh, David, thank you very much for bringing this concept forward and making it happen. Tom, thank you for bringing your expertise. Most importantly to both of you, thank you for your service and uh, the freedoms that you protect and uh, provide for all of us. Um, it is sincerely appreciated. And and thank you for your time on, on this episode. It's been really fun and interesting. And Tom, I look forward to, to meeting you in person in a few weeks. I look forward to it. I, I'm never been up to Minneapolis. So, you, you, you know, it'll be, a, be an awesome experience. Bring a coat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.